We've been going through the series in Psalm, the original playlist, and uh, today we actually have one of the longer Psalms, coming from Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up. Like a, potter, like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws and lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell you of your name to my brothers. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All of you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or adorned the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear me. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, and he has done it. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Case. Well, my name's Nate. Good to be with you guys this morning, if you're new here. Um, so recently I came across a story about a young woman named Gigi. It's got to be real, right? Her name's Gigi. But honestly, she writes a little bit about some of the hardships that she's faced so her story goes like this. She moved um, a few years back, got married to a pastor, and about a month before they were going to be married, uh, 
her husband's most trusted leader in the, the church was exposed as having multiple moral failures with a number of women. After the honeymoon, they get back and they had worked in a process of trying to restore this man. And they, they get back and they found out that this man actually met with a number of the key people in the church, had sown so many different lies of, of deceit. And because of that, within about six months' time, they lost about 75% of the whole congregation. And many of um, those friends that left, they, they just left because of this deceit. It wasn't true. And they're just stuck, just alone. It doesn't get any better. Um, in fact, a few months later, um, one of those gals that stuck around, that was actually one of her closest friends, uh, she ends up drowning in an accident. And then a week after that, both this woman and her husband were assaulted at gunpoint by several cops for no identifiable reason. So, so Gigi's sitting in the midst of all of this suffering, and she's asking this question, God, why do you feel so far away in life's darkest moments? Have you ever asked that question? Obviously, your story, my story's different than this story. But have you ever walked through seasons of your life, perhaps you're in one now, in which there's been various forms of suffering? And God has felt very distant. You've asked the question, God, why? Why do you feel so distant in the midst of my dark moments? So this morning, as we kind of continue our series in the original playlist, um, Psalm 22 is actually met. <laughs> its purpose is, I would suggest, to meet people who are asking that question. Um, I would maybe put it this way. This psalm puts forward to us how we hold on to God when it feels like he's nowhere to be found. How do we hold on to God when it feels like he's nowhere to be found in our circumstances? And I want to suggest to you this morning that this track gives us what I would say is four handles. Four handles to grab onto in the midst of whatever we face to walk with God when we feel like he is absent from our life. So let me pray. And uh, we'll, we'll dig in. Father, we just pray now um, that, one, the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts during this time would be pleasing in your sight. For you are our Lord, you are a rock, and you are one who redeems. Amen. Amen. So, Handle number one. I, I don't know if you guys see this or not, but if you, if you look at like verse one, for example, the psalmist begins this way. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? I don't know if you guys catch that or not, but that is brutally honest. The, the author here is looking within, he's saying, I feel like God is nowhere to be found. 
I've, I've cried out and I haven't heard anything back. He's just saying, God, where are you? You can go down to verses six to eight. It'll be up here in a moment on the screen. It, this is what he says. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. He's, he's talking about this situation, which here he is. He's, he's trusting God, but people are actually mocking him for doing it. And one commentator notes that, especially where this section is right here, this individual is trying to wrap his mind around this present experience of suffering with who he knows who God is. And it's not lining up. There's this angst. We we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that, that this is a psalm of lament. This is like the indie rock version of the psalms. This is, life is not great. This is really hard. How does who I know who you are, God, actually line up with my present experience? They're, they're not jiving. They're not lining up. And one of the things we need to do for a moment here is just reflect on just the actual scriptures themselves. Like, what is this? Is this just a book of human writings, whatever? But, but here's the deal. In like, for example, 2 Timothy 3, it says this about Scripture, that it is actually God-breathed, that it's, that it's His very Word. And when you begin to take that lens of this is God's Word, this is what God's revealed to us, and then you pause for a moment and you say, but there's this in here. There's language of, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's this brutal honesty. You have to ask the question, what's going on? What does this reveal about God? And Derek Kidner, he's a scholar, he He says this, the very presence of such prayers in Scripture, listen to this, is a witness to his understanding. He knows how men and women speak when they are desperate. You know, um, if you listen to various songs on the radio, you know, sometimes they bleep out things, right? Because it's not appropriate. I've always wanted that job, you know, to like to push the button for whenever that is. Like, oh, shoot, I missed it. You know, that was the wrong word or whatever. Funny things are right. Well, think about this moment. If if God's word is really God's word, he could have bleeped this out. Uh, He could have censored this first part. He could have said, "Uh, I don't know if I want this in here. Uh, What are people going to think if they can say things like this? But that's not what God does. He actually gives room and language for angst in our lives. To be brutally honest with him. Of all the things that we don't like and all the things that we don't understand. I said this a a couple weeks back. We were going through a similar genre of prayer back in Psalm 13. But, but I want to repeat this. This, this. this does a couple things. Um, th- this, this handle of just honest, candid prayers to God, what it does is it dismantles the simple notion that if you feel like God is absent in your life, that he's nowhere to be found, that perhaps you might be like on the JV spiritual team, okay? You haven't quite reached varsity, 
David who writes the psalm, uh, he ain't JV, okay? <laughs> Let's put it honestly, okay? He's not JV, all right? He's not perfect, but he's not JV. Th- this handle of being honest and candid with God when we don't like the things happening in our life, it, it dismantles the elementary mentality that to trust God means we need to come with him with this kind of like stoic, cleaned up face, I'm okay, I know everything's going to be all right, and just smile. Because not, that, that's not what's happening here. This first handle, it calls us, it calls us to be honest and candid with God. When he feels like he's not there, to actually say, God, where are you? Why are you not answering? But this psalm doesn't, doesn't just leave us there. There's another handle. And it's this one. It, it calls us to remember God's past faithfulness. Look at 3 to 5 and 9 to 10 here. Three, verse 3 says this, Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. And then verses 9 to 10, it it says this, "Yet, Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And what's happening in these different sections is that the first section, he's, he's looking back on God's people, and he's looking back at what God has done in their lives. He's looking back on how he's been faithful. And you might think about David looking back, for example, he might look back to, for example, the book of Exodus or Genesis and the accounts of how often God rescues his people. The book of Judges, how God's people run the other direction and God continues to be gracious to them and rescue them. In the midst of his wondering, where are you, God? He, he draws on who God's been in the past. Not only that, 9 and 10, he actually gets personal. He uses this metaphor of, um, you took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. It's this metaphor of being like a baby. I mean, there's, just, there's nothing about a baby that, I mean, he's just helpless. Completely dependent on its mother to be nourished, to be cared for. And, and David's saying, my whole life, you have taken care of me providentially. You've taken care of my needs. So, so David looks at the bar community, says, hey, I've seen your faithfulness there, and I've also seen you in my own life. And this second handle is so important because think about it. When you are in the midst of facing circumstances that are just so difficult, you, let's just be honest, we're just forgetful people, Right? We forget what God has done. Uh, a couple weeks ago, my mom was out from Florida, and um, some of you saw her here. She was visiting. She had just retired, like over 30-plus years of working in um, education. And we went out uh, to celebrate that, and uh, we were down at Bluefies. Great food, a lot of fun. And we wanted to make it real intentional, and so we asked, um, I, we, we told the kids, come up with a question to ask Grandma. And one of the questions was this, 
grandma, what did you do? <laughs> you know, it's like <laughs> after 30 plus years, you don't even know what your grandma does. All right, well, she's done anyway. It doesn't matter anyway. Um, but the other question we asked her was, well, what, what lessons have you learned over these years? I was really amazed at this. I thought it was going to be something about leadership or this or that. And without skipping a beat, she said this, being rescued by God in little and big ways. And she's talking about her vocation. She, you know what I mean? Like she's talking about the ins and outs of working in education for 30 plus years. That God's been active rescuing her. Let me, um, let me, let me challenge you this morning uh, to have a conversation, perhaps over brunch today, perhaps it's uh, while you're running errands with your kids, perhaps it's over a meal time, perhaps it's in the midst of your city group this week, but just ask the question this, like how have you seen God's faithfulness in your life and the lives of those around you? You know, we need to build a repertoire, right? Almost an index of, God, you have been faithful. Because there are going to be seasons and there are going to be times, and some of you right now are in the midst of it, in which you are wondering, where are you? You need a handle. You need to look back on what God's done. The third handle is persistent pleading. And we see this in verses 11 and 19 through 21. Verse 11 says this, Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. 19 and 21 goes on to say, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Will you, my help, come quickly to my aid? Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. It's just this persistent pleading. Um, you see it throughout this text that this person is in so much angst, but yet they continue to ask God, God, will you please show up? Will you please rescue? Will you please do something? It just doesn't stop. Um, it, it's this. It's, it's Although you may feel like the only thing that has ever heard your prayers is the popcorn ceiling right on the I'm sorry, the popcorn, paint, ceiling, whatever deal, right? That, that's it. Like, it just goes that high and it's done, right? Like, nothing beyond there. But you just keep coming with persistent pleading. Keep asking God, will you help? Will you rescue? I was thinking about what this looks like in my own life. And um, if you don't have kids, just come hang out at our house. Like, here's the deal. Like, kids know what persistent pleading is. Like, they get it, you know? Like, come to our house, like, 7.45, 8 o'clock at night, kids are down, and we tell them, hey, no calling out. Like, unless it's an emergency, like house on fire. No calling out. And Grace is laughing because she knows this. Like, um, <laughs> uh, seriously, 75% of the time, I swear, like, we'll hear the mom, like the two-syllable mom or, you know, the dad. And Amanda and I are on the couch, and we're just starting to relax, you know, trying to figure out what we're going to watch on Netflix or something. And, and you want to just ignore it. You know what I mean? Like, but you know it's just going to keep going. You know, like, you're going to have to show up, you know. 
<clears throat> and of course, that's like a horrible illustration, right? Because God's not like that in the sense that he's just nagging wanting to watch Netflix and be quiet. You know, it's not obviously what he's like. He, he's not like that, but, but kids know, right? There's something about like, I've got a trust in my parent who loves me, cares for me, and I, I need something. And sometimes that only comes after persistent pleading. Handle number three, it's persistent pleading. So some of you, um, perhaps, in the midst of what you're facing right now, perhaps you need to begin asking. Like, you just haven't. You haven't asked God for help. Some of you, you you've, you've asked, but you've just stopped. You're like, I'm done. I tried that for a week. That didn't work. I tried that for a year, whatever it might be. This handle is one of persistent pleading. Handle number four, it's hope, hope. And we see this in verses 23 through 30. Um, And particularly, let me just um, frame it. In verse 24, here's what it says. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. In in, in other words, (coughs) in this situation, God's answered. God has answered. God has shown up and has rescued this individual. And you might be sitting here going, okay, well, but what if, like, I'm reading through this psalm and I'm praying and I'm asking and he hasn't shown up yet. What what does that mean? And I would say what this does, it builds confidence that in some form or another, it is certainly coming. It's certainly coming. You see, the rest of 23 through 30, it's just one big, like, party. God, you've showed up. Let me get my friends. Let me get the nations. Let's have a party because God has rescued me. He won't shut up. He can't shut up because God's been that good. Now, some of you this morning, um, You've heard me talk about these four handles of, you know, candor and honesty, persistent pleading about remembering, about hope. And honestly, you're sitting there going, well, um, I I get it, but I'm really not even sure I want to grab on. Some of you this morning might be curious or skeptical. You might be saying, I'm not even sure if there is a God, and even if there is a God, I'm not even sure if I'm willing to trust that God. In other words, you might simply ask this question. Why should I trust a God who seems so distant in the midst of my suffering? Why should I trust God when the circumstances of my life seem to point to the very absence of God? Why would I grab on? There's something else that's going on in track 22. There's something more than just these four handles. Just throw it out this way. You see, uh, approximately 900 or so years after this psalm was penned, Jesus appeared on the scene and 
those that were writing a historical account of his life, when, when they get to a certain section of his life in his crucifixion and his suffering, they actually almost exclusively go to this psalm. If you're like a, like a statistical geek nerd and you like statistics, um, here's one for you. Of the 13 Old Testament texts surrounding the events of Jesus' crucifixion, five come from the psalm. Five. So the question is, what does that mean? You know, like, wh- what does that mean? And I want to suggest a, a couple things. The first is this. Jesus on the cross quotes verse one. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He didn't just make that up. He's quoting Psalm 22. He knows it. What does this say about him? (coughs) I think it says at at least one thing. It says this, that Jesus suffers with us. He suffers with us. And that says something very uniquely about the Christian faith. Um, In fact, I would say this. There's nothing like this in any other religious system around the sun. It says, not only does God know about suffering, but because Jesus is, by his own admission, God in the flesh, it's saying he's actually experienced suffering. He's actually tasted suffering. Um, You know what it's like when you say, hey, I've gone through this in my life, and someone knows about it, right? They've Googled it. Oh, I know about that. Well, you know, that's great. Thanks for knowing about it. But it's a whole different thing when you show up and somebody's actually been in the very footsteps that you've been in. When Jesus quotes verse 1 on the cross, and he's the exact representation of who God is in the flesh, what that is saying is that the God of the universe knows firsthand experience of what it's like to suffer. Buddhism will tell you that suffering is an illusion. You know, can I get rid of your desires? Islam has a very transcendent view of God, not an imminent view. Christianity is the only religion that holds both of those in tension. Christianity says that God has actually come in our place, in our shoes, and tasted and experienced suffering. And if you're wondering right now, can I really trust God with whatever you're facing? Ronald Rickers, um, an author, puts it (coughs) probably no better way than any of us can put it. He says this, the main reason that Christians insist that God can be trusted in the midst of suffering is that God himself has first-hand experience of suffering. Hmm. In fact, if you think about Jesus on the cross, quoting Psalm 22, it actually gives permission and encouragement to those who suffer to actually hold the worst of whatever you're facing in life up to God. First thing it shows that is, is that Jesus suffers with us. But there's something more. Um, and and the, the commentators wrestle with this because the consensus is, is that Psalm 22 seems to go beyond what the author David has actually experienced in his life. Um, if you look at the 
account of David's life, um, he went through some pretty bad stuff. Like Saul wanted to kill him. He was a jealous king, etc. Um, his own, one of his own sons rose up to try to overtake him, overthrow him. But there's some things that happen in Psalm 22 that seem to have no place in David's life. So for example, in verse 16 it says, they have pierced my hands and feet. In verse 18 it says, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. Well, what do the gospel writers do? They write about the events of Jesus' final moments in which his hands and his feet are pierced. In which what? The soldiers, what do they do with his garments? They divide his garments. In which the chief priests walk by and they verbatim say verse 8, he trusts in God, let God deliver him. They mock him. And then Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you begin to read around about what is happening on the cross, you begin to understand that actually Jesus was forsaken by his Father. And the only, the best place I could take you to understand what's happening there in that moment is What the Apostle Paul writes about in in his letter to the Corinthian church in chapter 5, verse 21, he says this, For our sake, speaking about humanity, he, speaking about God the Father, made him, speaking about Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Um, It's saying that Jesus, perfect, didn't deserve anything, innocent but that he was made sin for us, meaning he took on the worst of what we are. He became the thieves, the slanderers, the murderers, the idolaters, the sexually immoral, the gluttons, all of that. And that God the Father in his holiness could not look on that sin. And in that moment on the cross when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He turned his back on his son. In other words, it, it's not just that God suffered with us, it's that he suffered for us. And three days later, the, the eyewitnesses say that he rose from the dead, and that just, that's just talking about that it's Jesus and what he did, it's fully vindicated, like it's sufficient. He has taken care, he has completed all that he came to do. What's interesting is that as much as Psalm 22 reveals, you know, handles, right, that we can grab all, hold on to God when he feels absent, it actually, I would say it's trumped by the simple fact that it points to actually how God actually grabs a hold of us. Purely by grace. And let me just for a moment address those perhaps this morning who are not Christians. Um, Just draw your attention to this reality of God's love for you that is found and is revealed in Jesus on the cross. In verse 27, 
It says this, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. It's this summons for the all the nations to come, to turn from the various gods they worship and actually come to worship Jesus for what he has done. It's an invitation, it's a summons for you this morning to come to put your trust in him to turn for whatever it is you're trusting and say, no one's ever loved me like that. One of the things that happens when you put your trust in this, in this gospel, in this Jesus, and what Psalm 22 points to, is it, it, it also it gives us a lens through which to actually face suffering. So William Cowper, he's an 18th century British poet. He, he put it this way. It'll be up there. He says this, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Now, what Cowper is eloquently saying though, in those couple lines, he's saying if you look around at your life and look around at the events of your life and they're really difficult, they're really hard, you may think God hates you. You may think that God's opposed to you. But if you're in his son Jesus, Cowper's saying behind the frowning providence, behind all the stuff you're facing, God is actually smiling. not because of your performance, but because of what Jesus has done. That's what he's talking about with grace. It's all because of what Jesus has done. So here's the deal. See, I, I don't know what you're facing, and I don't know what you're walking through, and what your story is, or what it will be, but, but I can promise you this. See, with the lens of who Jesus is and what he's done, Here's how that changed things. See, we, we don't know always the reasons why we walk through the stuff we walk through. But we know what the reason is not. It's not that he doesn't love us. You guys, the cross and the empty tomb, with that before us, we know it's not because he doesn't love us. Jesus has suffered with us and he has suffered for us so that when we suffer, Listen, we might walk with an assurance of his love. And listen, the certainty that nothing we face, nothing, nothing can come between you and him. Paul wrote this in Romans 8, talking about this very point. He says this, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present happening right now, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. You, Paul, could you give us anything more, right? I mean, just listen, everything possible. <laughs> Nothing will be able to separate us from what? The love of God 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. <clears throat> I mentioned at the beginning this story of Gigi, and um, one of the things that she works through in this story is it's not like one day, like, you know, like light switch comes on, hey, I'm just fine. You know what I mean? I got it, right? But she talks about, in the midst of God's absence, she begins to reflect on what we've just gone through, about this good news of what Jesus has done. And she goes to passages like Philippians 2, where Jesus is, leaves the comforts of heavens and lays aside his privileges, and in the most selfless act in human history, lays his life down for sinners. She puts in there passages like Isaiah 53 that says that even though he did this, he was actually despised and forsaken by men. That he was a man of sorrows. He wasn't always happy, right? He was acquainted with grief. It wasn't easy. And she writes, it was then that she began to feel deeply his nearness. And this is what she writes. It'll be up there on the screen here. It says this. She writes this. I saw that the suffering is the inextricable base color thread woven through the fabric of the gospel. It is the canvas upon which salvation has been painted. Somehow, in modern day Christian circles, we tend to see God's faithfulness as saving us from suffering. And yes, sometimes in his great mercy, he does save us from suffering. But that is not the mark of his faithfulness. We see in scripture that many of those he loved deeply are also those who suffered greatly. She writes later, and it won't be up there, but listen to this. She writes later that this great moment of nearness with my father did not remove the pain or the unspeakable grief, but... It filled it with purpose and redemption. And then she, she writes, and this is, this is, it's almost like after this, just drop the mic and shut up, right? She writes, I see his story in mine. Psalm 22, it gives us handles. But perhaps most importantly, we begin to see the handles upon which God takes a hold of us. And we simply look to his son, Jesus. We walk by faith, holding on to the fact that we are certain of his love, certain of his care, no matter. You gotta hear this, no matter what you face. Let's pray. Father, you, you know where our hearts are in this room this morning. You know um, the dark clouds that seem to circle in on some of our lives here, and there seems to be little light. You know um, our lives 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, and you know what's going to happen. You, you know the things we're going to face. You know where we've been and the questions we've got. And I just pray that your gospel, this good news of Jesus, 
that in the midst of whatever we're facing, in the midst of the darkness, that it would shine like a light piercing through the darkness and give us hope and comfort and assurance that you are good even when our circumstances don't say that. That you love us even when our circumstances don't particularly feel like that. That you are with us even when we feel like you are nowhere near us. And that all of that is summed up by looking at your son Jesus. So we ask you for help now to help us learn and to walk in this way. Amen.